Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu, Associate Professor and Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. For this episode, I'm joined by a special co-host, Dr. Paul Bunn. Dr. Bunn was the founding director of the University of Colorado Cancer Center, a former president of IASLC and of ASCO, uh, and really one of the founding fathers of thoracic oncology as a specialty. Dr. Bunn, thank you for co-hosting today. Stephen, thank you for those uh, kind comments. It's a pleasure to be working with such a distinguished group of people and uh, to have everyone learn more about Tal-Sex. Well, as you mentioned, we have two very special guests today. First, Dr. Tal Zaks, the Chief Medical Officer at Moderna. Dr. Zaks received his MD and PhD at Ben-Gurion University in Israel, completed a postdoc at the NIH, and his clinical training in Philadelphia at Temple and UPenn. He has been the CMO at Moderna since 2015 and has played a direct role in developing the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Zaks, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. And Paul, great to see you again. So, Dr. Bond, I believe you already know Dr. Zaks. Yes, I've worked with him on several projects. First of all, he followed some of the uh, career tracks that I had being at the NIH and then in academic centers. Obviously, uh, I've been to Israel and to many of the places there, but I never worked there. And then I never worked in uh, industry. So he has some experiences that we're going to be talking about today that, that I've not had. So um, I'm looking forward to his uh, comments uh, about his career. And we also have Dr. Amy Moore with us today. She's a trained PhD virologist and cancer researcher. She serves as the Director of Science and Research at the GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer, one of the most impactful nonprofit organizations serving the lung cancer community. And I must say that more recently, I've had an opportunity to work with both of them on some COVID-related issues. So it's a pleasure to be here with them, and it's your turn, Dr. Moore. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. It's a true honor to be with two of my lung cancer heroes, uh, Dr. Liu and Dr. Bunn. I admire you both tremendously, and as you said, I'm trained as a virologist and have um, deep interest in the vaccine space. So it's a, a complete thrill to be with you as well, Dr. Zaks, and I look forward to our conversation. Dr. Zaks, our focus today is on the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, which everybody has heard much about and is clearly important for lung cancer patients who are at high risk, but for all people, both in the United States and around the world. Moderna also has other ties uh, to oncology. The mRNA uh, platform uh, has many potential uses, and I hope we can learn about some of them, uh, as well as therapeutic cancer vaccines. So, Dr. Zaks, take it away. Yeah, so so thanks for that. I think as, as you look at the mRNA technology, what we do is actually use information technology as a source of making medicines and vaccines. And what do I mean by that? Our, our medicines and vaccines are really the code that teach our body's own cells how to make a protein. 
and in that regard, what a messenger RNA vaccine is, it's basically a sequence uh, within a lipid nanoparticle. You know, it almost looks like a virus. And when it goes inside the muscle cells, in the case of a vaccine, it teaches the body's own cells to make a protein. And if that protein is foreign, then it will wake up the immune system and the immune system will recognize it as such. Now, the similarity with cancer is that we know that when we try to generate an immune response for cancer, that immune response is most powerful if we can direct that immune response towards um, an antigen, something that's on the surface of those cells or something that's strange that's encoded within those cells that arises from the cancer cells mutations. And so as we looked at the potential of this technology to generate an immune response, it was clear that there's a similarity between infectious disease vaccines and cancer and that if we could encode the right thing for the immune system to recognize, which in the case of a vaccine, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is, as we know, the spike protein, and in the case of cancer, it's whatever mutations happen to be in that patient. The differences, however, are uh, that, you know, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 isn't, isn't cancer. And the, what the immune system sees and what the immune system needs to recognize in both cases is somewhat different. In the case of oncology of cancer, we're trying to get the T cell, the cellular arm of our immune response to recognize it. And in the case of a COVID-19 infection or SARS-CoV-2 infection, what we're trying to do is generate neutralizing antibodies. Now, that being said, from, from the technology standpoint, there's a great similarity. And in fact, it's been our experience with the cancer vaccines that on the manufacturing side of all places has made us uh, ready for uh, the COVID-19. Because in order to get a personalized cancer vaccine, you need to do two things. One is you need to make a batch that is small in size because it's got to be enough just for that individual. It's unique for that own patient cells. But you need to make it quickly. The turnaround time has to be fast because patients in whom you're trying to give a therapeutic vaccine don't have time to wait for you. And so as we learned how to scale up our manufacturing process in such a way that it could turn around quickly, we were quite well suited to an application where we needed to very quickly respond to this pandemic in the beginning of last year. Dr. Zaks, before we talk about where we are now with, with that vaccine, can you take us back a little bit to maybe early 2020? And as you mentioned, Moderna has been working on therapeutic cancer vaccines for some time, making exciting progress. But in early 2020, the world's learning about this new coronavirus, as, as you mentioned, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. In those early months, as China and Italy struggled with this highly infectious and potentially lethal virus, Moderna quickly turned its attention, to, to all of our benefit, to developing a vaccine for a novel pathogen. Can you sort of talk about those early days, that those decisions and that early development process? Yeah, um, it's been it's been a fascinating time. You know, as, as people try to retell the story of of, of great uh, innovations and discoveries and progress, we often are looking for that eureka moment where in our you know our communities was in a bathtub and say, "Hey, I got it." I think for us, there there was not a single eureka moment, but there were a few really quite important milestones. The first thing to note is that we were actually well set up for this by virtue of both a, a strong collaboration with the NIH and where the scientific field was. Our collaboration with the NIH has been going for a number of years and it was based on the, the, the potential that we and Tony Fauci's team saw for this technology in the case of a pandemic. And we would go down once a year and kind of look at the progress uh, we've 
we've been developing a, a multitude of phase one vaccines over the past several years. And in September of 2019, uh, Stefan Bonsell, the CEO, and I were down meeting with Tony Fauci and his team. And I remember they were looking at the data and they said, okay, we really need to test out the ability to do this. How do we do a test case? And the conversation then turned to, let's do a demonstration project where we'll just pick a virus, we'll artificially start a clock and see how fast you can go and we can get it into the clinic. Well, in the beginning of January, it became clear with the news coming out of China that this was not a drill. This is a live fire. And so as the team started to talk and it became clear that this is the one that we need to start chasing, this one's for real, uh, the sequence was published on January 11th and within 48 hours, we put our first vaccine into production. And so because we start from information, all we needed was the sequence. And this is where the second point comes in, which is science. We and the field knew that it's the spike protein that matters. And we knew that because of research that had been done in the previous years on the cousins of SARS-CoV-2, which are SARS or SARS-CoV-1 and MERS. And these two viruses are related enough that they taught us what is it that the immune system should recognize and it's the spike protein. And it's not a mistake. If you look today at all the vaccines that are coming to market or soon to come to market, they're all encoding the spike protein. And so that's where science had put us ahead, if you will, knowing what it is we're trying to generate immunity against that should matter. And so between being the, the collaboration with the NIH and the scientific know-how, uh, the third decision we needed to make was really how fast and furious do we invest in manufacturing scale up? And as we started to put our own resources and really prioritize this above everything else, I think the US government then also stepped in with BARDA. Uh, and so it was a very strong collaboration with several branches of the government that helped us um, get to where we are. But all of this is really standing for us on about a decade of investment in innovation, both on the technology standpoint, but also on the manufacturing side. So I think we came to this pandemic, fortunately, relatively well prepared. It's fascinating to think of all those prior experiences really as prelude to, to where we are now. As we continue to learn more about this virus, a lot of our own groups began to report patients with lung cancer seem to be at greater risk of complications or severe COVID-19 infection. Uh, let me go to Dr. Moore. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on that? Sure. I mean, I think for obvious reasons, given that SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus, you know, many of us were you know, very concerned about the potential impact on the lung cancer community. And, and because of that, a number of survey efforts were undertaken, not just for lung cancer, but across the cancer uh, community. And, and what those survey efforts have revealed, um, one in particular led by an international consortium called Terravolt, led by Dr. Marina Garasino, who at the time was based in Italy, now in Chicago, is that patients with lung cancer have more severe disease and have elevated mortality, uh, approaching at least 32%. So, you know, obviously for those of us in the lung cancer uh, field, this gives us great pause and is of great concern. So I think, you know, we're united in our community, you know, to focus on understanding the ongoing impacts, both short-term and long-term for patients with lung cancer. You know, as Dr. Bunn alluded to, we've been involved in some recent work to understand the nature of the immune response in those patients and how it may differ in patients with lung cancer compared to healthy individuals. And then, of course, you know, making sure that patients, all patients with cancer, but especially those with lung cancer, are prioritized for vaccination. So that's been a clear focus of our recent efforts. But as you say, it's 
something that um, was an obvious concern out of the gate, and the data have borne that out, that it is a, a unique threat to the lung cancer community. So, Dr. Zachs, you've been telling us how you were prepared to make this vaccine go so quickly, but I want to ask you a, a couple questions about it. So, patients respond, and uh, the second booster increases the antibody levels even more. Now, there's a couple questions. How long does that last? How long are you expecting to have high antibody levels, number one? Number two, if the antibody levels uh, were to decline, since this is a liposomal uh, agent, uh, presumably you're not getting an allergic reaction to the liposome, uh, and so you might be able to give it again. So one question is how long does it last and can you give it again? Another question is some of the other vaccines that are in adenoviruses, if you keep giving boosters of those, you may get an allergic reaction to the adenovirus. So if somebody had a, an, an adenovirus vaccine and the antibody levels were insufficient or declined, could you then give the Moderna vaccine? So, so uh, that's a great question, and I believe the answer is yes, although we don't yet have data. So I'm saying that based on uh, first immunological principles, if you will. The booster shot, so, so mRNA will focus the attention of the immune system solely on the transgene. In this case, it's the spike protein. It's the gene that is getting expressed. There's nothing else. There's no other protein that's being made, and the immune system doesn't see the lipid nanoparticle per se, uh, which means that when you come in with a boost or a second dose a month later, as in our case, you can see about a log fold increase or even higher in the amount of antibodies that you have. And if you come in with a third dose later, and we've done that not yet for SARS-CoV-2, but we've shown that for another vaccine for CMV, you can continue to boost the levels of antibodies. In fact, for CMV, we've, we've exceeded what natural infection of a latent virus would do, something that the scientific field didn't even expect to be possible. Because of that, I think, ability to focus the attention of the immune system just on the thing you care about. Now, contrast that, rightly said, for adenovectors, where the immune system sees the totality of the vector um, and not just the gene from the SARS-CoV-2 that's transplanted into it, uh, you can get some increase when you boost with an adenovector, but it becomes quickly diminishing returns. And uh, even for the, the first boost, the magnitude of difference is not as high as it is for adenovectors as it is for mRNA vaccines. So for those reasons, I believe that should we need uh, uh, an additional booster dose in the future, you know, a year or two out, or uh, to slightly modify the immune response if there's a variant of concern that emerging, I think the flexibility and that focusing of the attention of the immune system just on the gene you care about, just on the spike protein, will be an advantage for the mRNA vaccine platforms and will enable them to boost irrespective of what previous uh, vaccination you've had. Now, you started by asking me about the durability. I think it's early days, but from the level of antibodies that we've seen, I, I'd, I'd make uh, three comments. Number one, the initial levels exceed what you see with natural infection for, for our mRNA vaccine. And so you're starting at a 
even better point than you would be than uh, had you been infection had you been infected as far as neutralizing antibodies and so you know antibody levels decline over time otherwise by the time you'd be my age you'd be walking around with your with your blood thick of previous infections and of course we don't so all antibody levels decline over time however if you look at the rate of decline i would expect that we maintain protection for uh, 12 months or longer based on what i'm seeing so far we've published the data for the three months time point the data for the six months time point i think uh, have recently been submitted for publication in terms of what to expect then in the future i think uh, we are going to continue to look at the those data should the levels drop to below levels that we think would be protective then we will be ready uh with a with an additional booster shot if one is needed and we've actually started to test in the clinic the utility of such a third dose whether it's for the original ancestral strain or whether it's for some of these emerging variants of concern that people have started to talk about so those data will will come forward i think in the coming months and and will inform whether we we need further vaccination in the future to co- to bring it back to to patients and lung cancer patients uh as well as other cancer patients i think there is a concern that people whose immune system is compromised uh won't mount as strong an antibody response and perhaps those would be more vulnerable and those would be the type of people that we would try to uh better protect with an additional dose uh if we need to. Thank you that was really helpful. As we know there's been over 100 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide, millions of deaths, a half a million or more in the United States. and of course this has changed uh, all of our lives tremendously but for lung cancer those patients are always looking for better therapies and we make better therapies by clinical trials and lung cancer research so dr moore can you comment on what's happened to lung cancer research during this pandemic Sure. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there were impacts and, you know, with the initial shutdown uh last spring, you know, research labs were shuttered nationwide. We saw decreases in clinical trial enrollment. We've seen declines in screening and other preventive services. But on the flip side, we've also seen some silver linings. We've seen rapid mobilization and adoption of telehealth services we've seen innovations in clinical trials uh, such as remote consent that have allowed some recovery of our clinical trials enrollment you know lung cancer doesn't stop even though we're dealing with this global pandemic and the good news is that in 2020 we had approximately a dozen new drug approvals in the lung cancer space touching on both non-small cell lung cancer small cell lung cancer really covering the spectrum of new targeted agents new immunotherapy options you know and, and it's important that we don't lose sight of the tremendous momentum that we've been able to maintain in the lung cancer space despite the pandemic you know at the beginning of last year just before really the pandemic uh came on our radar the the full realization of what was going on came on our radar we were celebrating the second year of you know the single largest decline in cancer mortality much of which is attributable to advances in lung cancer research so you know i i recognize that there have been adjustments there have been impacts but 
our community is resilient and we've been able to continue to make meaningful progress on behalf of the community we serve, even in the face of this unprecedented global pandemic. So Dr. Zaks, uh, one thing that we hear a lot from the public is is really how quickly this all happened. I mean, you know, there's, there's really no no track record here for developing a, a vaccine to a novel pathogen in, in less than a year. What's your take on the speed at which this was all accomplished? Well, uh, I think that speed had three components. Uh, the first is that we were able to get started quickly, both in terms of knowing what to go after and having a technology that was ready to move fast and scale up fast. The second element is a tremendous level of collaboration that we've seen with uh, regulators, both in the US and abroad, uh, that shared our sense of urgency. And really the real heroes here are the FDA. You know, I could hire a team and and scale up. Uh, FDA had to quickly look at everybody's data with more or less the same staff that they've had. And I I give them, uh, we should be very proud of the civil servant service level that we have in this country and their dedication to this cause, because it was their sort of cutting of bureaucratic red tape, if you will, and mustering the resources that enabled us to go so quickly from phase one to two to three without cutting any corners. The final element of speed is sort of the paradox of vaccine development, which is the phase three trials are a function of cases occurring. And so what you need to do is show that people who got your vaccine have less COVID-19 than the people on the placebo arm who didn't, which means you need a minimum number of people to, by chance, get sick. So the more the worse transmission of infection is out there, the faster the trial will read out. When we had designed our phase three trial back in the May timeframe, the anticipation was it would take us about six months to a year to see the results, even with a very large trial of 30,000 people. By the time we actually launched the trial, we were in the midst of a wave of infections. And so the trial, ours and others, read out within about three to four months as opposed to six to 12 months. And so that was an important element here of the speed. So Dr. Zaks, besides efficacy, obviously any vaccine or drug approved has to be safe and efficacious. So how about the safety of your vaccine? So let me make uh, a couple of points on what we know about safety. And it starts with a phase three trial which was designed and you know people focus on the speed but to counterbalance the speed what fda insisted is that the design is very rigorous and very conservative so 30,000 people very high statistical hurdles for the cognoscenti of those elements and an independent group of experts as a safety monitoring committee to overlook our you know and, and make sure that the safety is there and i didn't appoint these experts they were appointed by the nih and so it was all run in a very conservative manner what we end up seeing is that the safety is what you would expect from a vaccine, which is it's primarily reactogenicity, that is the immune system reacting to a foreign antigen, and that's either some local site pain or redness or swelling, and some systemic uh, malaise, muscle aches, etc., which are expected. They're transient, so they're all self-limiting, and they typically resolve within a, you know one to three days. In fact, the interesting thing for our vaccines is that the systemic side effects seem a tad worse after the second dose, which tells you that you know the immune system is actually waking up to recognize something it's been primed to see. 
So the immediate uh, tolerability profile is what we would expect from, phase th from, from a vaccine. And as far as serious or significant safety concerns, well, the truth was we didn't really see any in the clinical trial. And to date, we've had over 70 million people dosed in the United States, about half on our vaccine and half on Pfizer's. And the same continues to hold true. And we're looking at it, we and the CDC and FDA are looking at it very closely. And I would sort of close by saying two points. Number one, the CDC published their first sort of uh, report on the emerging safety profile of these vaccines in the uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly report uh, last week. And in it, they clearly conclude that the reactogenicity that we see immediately after vaccination is exactly what was anticipated by the phase three trials. They've not seen any emerging signs of significant concern from a safety perspective from now real world use in millions of people. And even that initial concern of allergic reactions or the, the anaphylaxis that people were talking about in the early days it occurs, but it is rare, and it occurs at about the same frequency as you would expect with your common flu vaccine. And so I think the emerging safety profile of these vaccines is uh, as you would expect and is uh, very favorable in terms of looking at the risk benefit. The last point I'd make, you know, people often ask me, well, what's the difference between your vaccine and Pfizer's? I think that's the wrong question. The beauty of what we see is how closely the data actually match up. You know, when, when as scientists, we look at data, when we see one data point, we always ask, well, is that a fluke? Is that just by chance? Can you replicate that? And what you see in the two mRNA vaccines, you see scientific replication to a level that I haven't seen in my professional career in terms of impact. Two companies leveraging the same scientific principle, the same antigen, the spike protein encoded with a messenger RNA, but using very different technologies developed independently. I mean, by law, we have to do these independent, right? And launched in separate large trials and tens of thousands of patients. When the data came in within a week of each other, the efficacy was within 1%. 94.1% for us, 95% for them. That level of scientific replication conceptually is the best, I think, um, guarantee we could ask for in terms of the veracity of the effect. And sure enough, since then, if you look at the emerging real world evidence of the impact that these vaccines are starting to make, that's been borne out. And it's been borne out both in terms of the uh, efficacy, but it's also being borne out in terms of the safety profile. And for those who aren't aware, the US FDA did issue an emergency use authorization for the Moderna vaccine on December 18th of 2020. Dr. Zaks, what is an emergency use authorization? Is that different from a regular approval? Yes. So an emergency use authorization requires two things. It requires that there be a public emergency that's been declared, and this has been true in our country since last March. And it requires that the intervention uh, has an expected benefit. So it's it's technically a lower bar by the regulations than a regular licensure. Now, that being said, in the case of the vaccines and the, if you will, the political climate under which we were operating on, I think FDA did something very wise, which is to say that for a vaccine, 
an emergency use authorization will require the same bar of safety and efficacy as would full licensure. What it would do is it would enable us to start utilizing those vaccines while the paperwork was being handled and FDA was conducting the usual review and we were collecting additional data. And so that enabled the vaccines to come into deployment. And this is deployment that is now in the hands of the US government. So the deployment is not your typical commercial deployment where we sell the vaccines. It's the US government that, that purchased it on behalf of the citizen and is responsible for the distribution. But it's also done faster than you will get a regular approval with the expectation that these data are now uh, getting wrapped up. All of the subjects on our trial, the placebo ones are being transitioned over to active vaccine. And, and once we complete the collection and the regular cleaning of the database, that will then get filed for a regular licensure. Dr. Zacht, we've talked a lot about the similarity with the Pfizer vaccine and a little bit about the differences uh, from some of the uh, other vaccines, including the Janssen vaccine recently approved. But can you tell us uh, some of the differences, not only in efficacy, design, and safety? Yeah, so I think uh, when you look at a vaccine, then there's elements that have to do with the manufacturing of your vaccine, the so-called critical quality attributes. That's a language used by, by the manufacturing folks. And basically what it refers to is how do you have to take care of your product in order to maintain its potency? And in that regard, I think the platforms are different. We've been investing quite a bit uh, for, as I said, quite some time in the manufacturing components. Um, you know, our CEO, my, my boss, Stefan Bunsell, is actually an engineer by training, and I give him a lot of credit for having the foresight to invest in engineering and manufacturing way ahead of having clinical data, so that by the time the pandemic hit, we actually had our own manufacturing plant. The people who do the technical development of those components we're actually working hand in hand with the researchers on one hand and the manufacturing folks on the other so that we could come to market with a product that actually requires temperature that you can find in your fridge. So it's up to six months and minus 20. And then when you put it in the normal four to eight degrees, it's up to 30 days just in, 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 a, in a regular fridge. And in fact, if you completely thought leave it outside, you're good for 12 hours. So that all enables easier deployment I think it's different in that uh, the Pfizer vaccine requires a more stringent cold chain. On the other side of it, more established technologies like the adenovector platforms don't need freezing from the get-go. Uh, they just need you know regular fridge temperatures. Uh, and I expect you will see other protein vaccines come to market that also have less stringent cold chain requirements. I think the cold chain requirements we have uh, to put a pin on it are, are simply those that you can find in most points of care in the US. And that's why I think the rollout in the past few weeks has been so uh, effective and productive in terms of mass vaccination. So from a technology standpoint and manufacturing standpoint, I think those are the big differences. There may be some differences in efficacy. I think, as I mentioned, uh, the mRNA vaccines both showed each other's to be very highly effective at about the 95% uh, level. I think the adenovectors are coming in a tad below that, still useful for uh, vaccinating everybody um, and certainly better than no vaccine. There are protein vaccines that are uh, further behind, but I think also have the potential to be effective 
Um, Novavax came in with pretty good um, data uh, for phase one, and uh, we wait to see their, their full phase three data. The rest, I think, are, are a bit further behind at this stage. Well, there's, there's certainly a tremendous demand for these vaccines globally and in the lung cancer community. Uh, Dr. Moore, what are you hearing about the rollout uh, in our community so far? Well, in one word, it's challenging. Um, you know, there are different policies nationally, uh, both at the state and local level. And I think what we're seeing is, is this growing fear of missing out um, for many of our patients. And, you know, the lung cancer advocacy groups in the U.S. and other efforts, you know, are, are doing what we can to advocate for prioritization of, of patients with cancer for vaccination. And we're lending our voices to kind of the growing chorus from leading professional societies to, to call for this prioritization. Uh, Dr. Bond and I have been part of an effort called the COVID Lung Cancer Consortium. We issued uh, a statement back in early January and sent letters to the CDC and, you know, my own organization, GoTo Foundation for Lung Cancer has done so, sending letters to ACIP, which is the body that advises CDC on uh, which groups should be prioritized next. You know, there have been letters that have been sent out to governors of the various states and, and patients, frankly, are taking matters into their own hands, many advocating for themselves and you know, taking advantage of media opportunities where they can to make the point and, you know, kind of reinforce the, the need for these highly vulnerable patients to be vaccinated as soon as possible. So it's something that is definitely a priority for our community and is kind of a, you know, all hands on deck call to make sure that patients who are vulnerable, like patients with lung cancer, can get vaccinated as soon as possible. Well, certainly a, a new challenge. We haven't really faced something like this before. And am I correct, Dr. Zaxson, assuming that Moderna yields to local health authorities with regard to distribution of the vaccine? Well, uh, yields is a strange noun in this context. Uh, the, the reality that during a pandemic, we all, uh, including myself as a citizen, look to our government and our public health officials to determine um, deployment of these vaccines. And so as a pharmaceutical sponsor in this case, we deal uh, only with governments and we actually go into agreements where we supply the government and then uh, they tell us they direct it. If you look at our letter of authorization under the emergency use authorization, it basically stipulates that we will send our product as directed by the CDC. And so we have no say in who gets the vaccine, when and how, that is all handled by the CDC and the local authorities. In terms of production, I think there's two issues. One is how much can you make for the U.S population, but obviously when we talk about herd immunity, uh, since the world uh, travels, we need to talk about production for immunizing people uh, that are outside the U.S. So what what are the production uh, capabilities and how do you determine where that goes? So that's a really good question. Um... The production capabilities is the easier one. I can tell you that this year, uh, we've recently updated our forecast. We expect to come in between 700 million and a billion doses, and we are going to further up that for next year. In terms of uh, how these get deployed, well, as I said, it really boils down to governments 
willing and interested in making purchases on behalf of their citizens uh, as early as possible. And the earlier you contract, the better off you secure supply. And to make a long story short, the US in this regard has been better than uh, most, if not all countries, in the sense that it had the foresight last year to contract ahead of the curve. And since it wasn't yet clear that mRNA technology would be as good, uh, they contracted several different platforms just to make sure that we have vaccine in the US. Similarly, we have been dealing with uh, other countries that have uh, wished to secure supply for their citizenry. And we have scaled not just in the United States, but also globally with manufacturing capabilities in Europe so that we can supply Europe and uh, the rest of the world. I think there's conversations on low middle income countries as well uh, that are handled typically through WHO bodies. And so uh, at a certain point, I, I certainly hope that we will get to a point that the rest of humanity can get vaccinated. Uh, in the United States right now, I think we seem to be getting ahead of the curve. Europe is about a quarter behind us. I think the rest of the world, unfortunately, is is further behind. But hopefully, by the end of this year or middle of next year, I think uh, we should get to a point where there is sufficient global supply uh, to go around. And certainly, I'm assuming here that it's not just the mRNA vaccines, it will be other technologies brought to bear as well. Dr. Moore, obviously, lung cancer patients, as we've been talking about, are uh, seemingly at, at higher risk. And we want as many people as possible to be vaccinated, but obviously there are concerns in the community about uh, whether they should receive these vaccines or not. What are you hearing from lung cancer patients about their willingness to undergo vaccination? You know, I think initially when the first EUAs came out uh, at the end of uh, 2020 and into 2021, there were the the usual fears around, you know, the vaccines were rushed, that it may alter your DNA, it may interfere with the patient's cancer treatment. And that's where, you know, through some of my efforts and those of the other lung cancer advocacy groups here in the U.S., we've done a lot to educate and empower our community with scientifically vetted information to help dissuade some of those fears. So I think we've overcome some of those initial you know, frankly, mis and misinformation that we were facing. And now we're seeing a transition in the, in the fears and, and anxieties in the community. And it's more, you know, as I said before, fear of missing out. When will it be my turn? You know, as we're seeing more and more different groups uh, get prioritized for vaccination, many cancer patients still can't get access. Then there's the question as different vaccine platforms come online, which vaccine should I get? Is one preferred over another for patients with lung cancer specifically? And then there are questions around timing of vaccination in the context of their ongoing cancer treatment. So, you know, if they're receiving chemo or IO, when should they time it with the cycles of their treatment? You know, is there any concern that vaccination may interfere with the efficacy of their treatment? So, I think, you know, we've been able to overcome just some of those initial um, misunderstandings, you know, based on just a purely new vaccine technology with the mRNA platforms. And now it's really 
helping patients get that access that they critically need. Dr. Zachs, can you comment on ways to overcome the general population's fears of the vaccine? Yeah, look, the it's it's a tough one. Uh, we live in an era of very divisive communication channels. I can tell you that we're doing three things as a sponsor. Uh, the first is that we are transparent with our data and we're transparent with our protocol. We were the first company to put our phase three protocol on the web unredacted as the trial was ongoing. Uh, and I'm happy to say that within 72 hours, the other pharma sponsors followed suit. So uh, we we showed our enrollment criteria because it was important to demonstrate that we are reaching out to people uh, in minority and diverse communities so that the results are applicable to them. And so transparency has become sort of, if you will, the cornerstone of how we approach the challenge. I think the second element is, you know, give an example. I can tell you I've been vaccinated. My mom's been vaccinated. She called me from Israel, say, hey, I, I only have access to the Pfizer vaccine because yours isn't here yet. I said, mom, take whatever is being offered uh, because it's important to get vaccinated. And so we believe that the science here is true and is demonstrating the ability to prevent um, from being infected and sick. And I think finally, it's really working through the trusted intermediaries. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to identify who is it that the people we care about trust and how do we convince them, whether those are local community leaders, the politicians, uh, even journalists. It, it's a world of stakeholders out there. And the only way we can affect a change is make sure that we are transparent and we are engaged in telling what we believe um, science is teaching us here. Beyond that, I respect the fact that people will come to their own different conclusions as to what's right for them. Personally, I treat patients with lung cancer and the treatments often involve radiotherapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, oral therapy with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And they ask me, should I get the vaccine as soon as possible. If I'm getting chemo, should I wait till it's over? When should I optimally get vaccinated during my lung cancer course? So uh, assuming that question is for me, I'll tell you uh, the truth is we don't have any data uh, because that we, we've just not had time to study it yet. There are trials uh, being uh, planned and, and about to start hopefully with the National Cancer Institute to start to look at some of that. But I would say you go back to first principles. Just like we vaccinate our patients against flu and pneumonia, uh, we should be vaccinating them against COVID-19. I think there is a heightened sense of urgency here because the risk of infection is so high given the current rates of transmission we still have in our midst and the risk of disease for our patients is so significant. So I think that the concern about the vaccination is not safety, it's more, will the vaccine be as effective as we want it to? But with that in mind, I would think that uh, the sooner we're able to vaccinate our patients, uh, the more protected they will be. And frankly, because our vaccines seem to achieve a higher level of neutralizing antibodies than even uh, you get with uh, natural infection on average, 
then I think that even if the vaccines are not as effective as we'd like them to be, they're probably still better than nothing, no matter what, what uh, level of immunosuppression that individual has. So I'm going out on a limb here a little bit and extrapolating, but I think it's important that people get vaccinated as soon as is feasible for them uh, clinically. That's really consistent with with all of our guidelines as well. And you know, we've seen the data. The Moderna vaccine is over ninety four percent effective at protecting people from infection, even more effective at preventing severe infection. Can you comment a bit on its role in reducing transmission? Or, you know, put another way, after vaccination, can people still develop an asymptomatic infection and transmit the virus? So it's a really good question, and it's one that's difficult to answer. Let me explain why it's difficult to answer. Transmission studies are easy to do in hamster cages, but they're much harder to do in people because it's a function of how quickly you actually measure something and how sensitive our measurements are. So what do I mean by that? If I'm vaccinated, then my immune system will prevent the virus from coming in, replicating, and causing significant harm. However, it may be that transiently, if some, if I walk up the street and somebody sneezes on me a whole bunch of COVID or SARS-CoV-2, it could be that for a while I have that virus in my nose. I may not feel it. I'll probably be asymptomatic, but I may transiently carry that virus. And if a block later, somebody sticks a swab on my, uh, up my nose and does a PCR test, it may come back positive. As I walked up that block, was I infectious? I don't know, but it's very hard to study because it's very hard to actually find people and, and test them with that level of, of um, intervention. Now, I think the important question is, if we get to a level where we're vaccinating the population, will that impact transmission? I think the answer is yes, because you can look at real world evidence now that vaccinating the population is starting to have an effect on rates of disease. And uh, I think these are very early days, but certainly the data coming out of Israel, which has already vaccinated a significant proportion of its population, is consistent with the notion that these vaccines work not just to protect the individuals who've been vaccinated, but they're starting to cause a decline that's more general. Of course, it'll take the coming months to prove that point, but I expect that before we're ever able to demonstrate transmission in a given study to our satisfaction, I hope that real world evidence will demonstrate that populations that have been vaccinated are simply seeing less cases and we will be able to extrapolate that from those data. And so for the time being, even after vaccination, it's reasonable to continue the safety practices we've implemented? I think so. Uh, I think that changing behaviors and safety practice should be primarily a function of transmission rates in our community as opposed to differential behaviors of people who've been vaccinated versus those who haven't. That being said, I understand that the CDC is working on guide guidelines uh, to provide guidance on that topic. And I would think that really, I mean, I'd look to to our public health officials to uh, to provide us guidance on that front. Obviously, viruses mutate, and for the flu vaccine, uh, we get a different vaccine every year based on the prevalent uh, mutants that are in the community. Uh, We have been hearing about new variants of uh, the COVID vaccine, I mean, uh, virus. Can you tell us whether the current vaccine is working against those variants, and will we need new vaccines in the future as new variants emerge? 
So uh, let me parse it out into, into two things. First, uh, the current variants of concerns that have emerged, uh, the ones coming out of England, the, the 117, uh, that's probably not a big risk in terms of vaccine efficacy. You get the same amount of neutralizing activity against it as you do the wild type or the ancestral strain. The variants coming out of South Africa and Brazil initially, uh, the 351 and the P.1, these seem to be different. In this case, there's a number of mutations that seem to render some of the neutralizing activity of the antibodies uh, less effective. I've seen the data, it's been published, and I believe, uh, and um, so does Tony Fauci, that the remaining level of neutralization should still be sufficient to prevent disease. That is, we're still above the level of protection, the threshold. And I say this based on what we've learned from the clinical trials, but also from the uh, preclinical studies as to how how high the antibody levels need to be to to uh, affect protection. So I think the current vaccines, the certainly ours that I can speak of directly for the data, I expect them to still be protective against even this variant. That being said, as antibody levels wane, the concern is that over time we will become relatively more susceptible. In other words, we will lose protection first against those variants of concern before we lose protection against the initial strain. And if that's the case and that variant is, starts to circulate, then that could be a problem. And that's why what we've done is to uh, put into production and now already deploy it into clinical trials, a booster shot of our vaccine that is matched to this strain. Now, that's about the strains we know today. The question about the future, you know, uh, I think is best left to people who can read tea leaves on the future. Uh, I can tell you that my sense is that there's a risk that this virus will mutate. From what the experts are saying, it's probably not as big as flu. But what we've learned from the other four coronaviruses that continue to circulate in our midst routinely and cause uh, the common cold to various levels of degree of severity, is that these viruses can also mutate to a certain degree over time. And it may be that in the future, we will need to update our vaccinations. At what frequency does it become a model like the flu, et cetera? I think it's too early to say. What's pretty clear today is that the best thing we can do is get ourselves and the ones we love vaccinated as soon as possible with the current vaccines we have, because they're very effective and they should also hold their effectivity against these variants of concern. And if in the future we see that there is some infection still occurring despite that, well, I think we'll be well and better prepared to react quicker because we will have now technologies and a manufacturing infrastructure that can react quickly and I can tell you the regulators, both on the FDA side and the European side, have already said that if we need to put a variant vaccine or get one approved, you don't need to repeat all the phase three work. You've done that. That's clear. All we need to do is show that we can stimulate the right kind of an immune response in a limited number of individuals, and we can go ahead and uh, boost everybody. So for now, I think we're in a decent spot as long as we get everybody vaccinated as soon as possible. If you know, come next winter or the year after, uh, we should, we will need to update that. I think we'll be in a much better place as a society to be able to handle it. Dr. Zaks, uh, any timeline of vaccine for children? 
Yeah, so uh, from our perspective, the study of adolescence is ongoing. I expect to have results uh, by the early summer. And uh, the goal here is to make sure that we can immunize that age group, uh, certainly before the next school year, if not sooner. I think for the younger age groups, uh, less than 12 years old, uh, we need to go a little bit back to the drawing board because you want to make sure you got the right dose for them. And so that's probably going to take a few extra months. I'm hoping to see data by the end of the year. Yeah. So. Uh, Tal, it's been a, a great pleasure working with you over the years, and you must have had just an unbelievable experience at Moderna through this whole thing, and you must feel really good about it. There's been some comments that you might be leaving Moderna and emerging into some new things in the future. Do you want to comment on that? Well, first, Paul, I, I don't think I've ever told you this, but uh, you're actually one of my academic uh, grandparents, uh, because the one of the people you trained back in Denver, Dr. Stemmer, had become my mentor in Israel, one of the first people that set me on the path to becoming an oncologist. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm grateful. I think that path has, uh, in the last six years, taken me uh, to Moderna, and certainly in the last year, put me at the forefront of translating science into medicine, which has become my personal passion certainly taking a company from its preclinical state to a place where we've just developed, got global approval and a global launch of one of the most impactful medicines I could hope to be part of uh, has been a fascinating journey. I think it is time for me to kind of step back and uh, figure out my next uh, place in life. Um, I promised you that I will stay true to those roots of trying to translate science into medicine to uh, to have an impact on um, the health of the patients we all care about. Well, I, I wish we could keep going, but I know everyone's time is is valuable. Dr. Zachs, thank you for spending time with IASLC today. And you know, more broadly, to your last point, thank you for all your efforts. I can share that many of my own patients in my clinic with lung cancer have received the Moderna vaccine and the work that you have done, the work you're doing is, is saving lives. So thank you for that. And thank you to Dr. Moore for joining us today and for the work that you do especially for our patients and their families, and for the initiatives uh, that you are leading at the GoTo Foundation. Thank you. It's a real honor to be with all of you today. It's been a real pleasure. That's this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Uh, don't forget to like the podcast and to share it with your colleagues and friends. Stay safe, everyone, and go get vaccinated. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 